Hello, I'm Cassidy, and welcome to the fifth episode of Series 2 of Made at UCL, the podcast. This podcast explores the world of UCL through the groundbreaking research and vital community work conducted by our staff and students. Freedom can be a wonderful thing, like the freedom to be queer without fear of prosecution, or to be able to pursue your dream career or protest when you believe something is wrong. But it can also come at a cost. For instance, things are opening back up again here in the UK, which is really exciting, but also kind of scary because we've been down this road before. In the past, the more freedoms restored, the higher number of cases and deaths. But hopefully uh, this time around, with the collective cost we've been paying for in the form of diligently getting our vaccine when called to, will prevent this from happening. As you might have guessed already, our guests today are here to talk about freedom in its privilege, in its beauty, and in its deception. First, we'll discuss the structural injustices faced by vulnerable workers in the UK and how freedom can be both positive and negative. It can have both positive. Then we'll hear from someone who will bring insight into the lives of a group of political prisoners who found hope in the bleakest of circumstances. When you spend so much time reading about people who have lost their freedom, the, the value of freedom becomes so much clearer. This will be followed by insight into how Alexa and other technological devices in your home can be hacked and used as tools for abuse. Freedom has its constraints. It is constrained by politics, by economics, by cultures, and it's intrinsically socially embedded. So it's socially constructed, this freedom. It's not as we perceive it to be. Let's get started. This is Virginia Mantuva Luama, professor of human rights and labor law at UCL in the law faculty. And her research looks at structural injustice. I'm working on various aspects of the interaction between human rights and labor law. So I'm looking at issues of workers' rights as human rights, issues of modern-day slavery, issues of workplace privacy, and other aspects of labor rights and human rights at work. Can you tell us what structural injustice is? Obviously, many of us think that the law is about doing good things to people, uh, protecting people from uh, exploitation, etc. However, through my research over many years, I realized that sometimes there are legal rules, uh, concrete legal rules, uh, that uh, place people in what I call structures of uh, exploitation, that the law sometimes creates vulnerability to exploitation. I'm talking about uh, structural injustice, uh, and it's a concept that is used quite a lot in uh, uh, political philosophy and legal theory. We're talking about situations where uh, social processes put people in a position of disadvantage, while other people benefit from this situation. These are not uh, situations where there is clearly 
one individual agent, one person or one institution that harms people. It's uh, about processes where we cannot really identify necessarily and easily the agent who is responsible for harming someone else, but it's about whole processes. So in relation to my research in law, the the questions that I uh, I started looking at over the years is when can we say that there are concrete legal rules? When can we say that there are laws that create vulnerability and lead to structures of injustice? Can you talk about what some of these laws are that are really causing the problems? Yeah. So the first example for is the, the example of immigration rules. There are concrete immigration rules that say that, you know, the, a worker can arrive in the UK, but they can only arrive accompanying an, an employer and they cannot change employer. So there is evidence that workers in this situation under very restrictive visa schemes are trapped in exploitative uh, employment relationships, that they are ill-treated by their employers, either by being underpaid or by having to work in terrible working conditions. So what happens is that sometimes these, these workers leave their employer and they become undocumented and then they look for more work and then they are trapped in exploitative relationships by employers who know that they are undocumented, etc. So the specific immigration law creates workers' vulnerability to exploitation and this is systematic exploited by private employers. If I have something wrong, they quickly get angry and shouting because I am just housemate. So they are thinking I am housemate. Housemate is the small people. So they can do what they want to do. You just heard an extract from a Kalyan interview with Rumi, a domestic worker from Indonesia. When she came to the UK, her employers took her passport to prevent her from leaving the abusive work situation that they had created. Through her research, Virginia has been working with Kalyan, where she is also a trustee, an organization which supports domestic workers through advocacy and advice. Virginia won the UCL Provost Award for public engagement for her work with Kalyan. Kalyan was able to help Rumi get her passport back and find new, better employment. I think about these people because a lot of times they are in trouble in these situations and then they try to get help for it. But then when they try to get help, they end up putting them in detention centers or other things end up happening. And so they end up becoming almost more vulnerable. And then, you, you know, if they're if they're not able to find other jobs and they're desperate to stay there, then they're probably going to go with a legal work, right? And then, of course, that's going to put them in an even more vulnerable situation. So it's scary. And, and it's, it's a horrible position that they're putting them in. And thinking about this, I, it just seems to me like these laws are just a way for keeping the power imbalance for those in power to stay in power, while those that are not aren't able to, to get out of their, of their situation. That's, that's frustrating. Oh, God, yes. And yeah, when I gave my inaugural lecture, then I had friends uh, coming to me afterwards saying, I'm so angry, you know, that they got angry that the law plays this role. 
the other thing I wanted to say, though, is that I'm not only interested in how the law creates this vulnerability and is connected to these uh, structures of exploitation, but also how we can use the law as academics, uh, as active citizens or as activists, how we can use the law to improve this situation. And I think that we can. And it's clear that at times uh, these laws can change and all these groups of people, poor migrants, disadvantaged people, the, the law does not have to make them vulnerable. There are concrete laws that make them vulnerable, but there are ways in which the law can help them and can empower them. What, what are some laws you think that can change that would really make a difference for people? So, for example, with uh, in the UK, I mentioned the overseas domestic worker visa that ties a worker to the employer with whom the worker arrived. Until 2012, we didn't have this. We had a visa whereby the domestic worker could arrive here accompanying an employer, but then they had the right to change employer. And after five years in the UK, they had the right to settle in the country. And this was a really good visa. And there are people who came on, the, on, such a, on this visa and stayed in the UK. And even then, uh, later on, got UK citizenship. So a visa should not tie workers to an employer. Because sometimes employers are exploitative. Uh, they are abusive. Uh, and uh, if my employer is exploitative and abusive, I, may, I, I will probably be able to change employer or even to go to court to claim my legal rights. Uh, if you're a domestic worker, there is very little you can do. You are too fearful, first of all. But also it's very difficult to prove uh, that uh, you are ex exploited or abused when you work in a private household. So there are certainly straightforward ways to improve this thing, to, to improve the law and to remove this vulnerability that forces people in exploitative working relations and traps them in this situation. It's not acceptable. It's not okay for the law to create further vulnerability to exploitation of people who are already in a position of disadvantage. Absolutely. What would you recommend for people to do to try try to help things to change? Is it can they call people? Can they what what, what can they do? I think it's important for all of us to be active uh, citizens in one way or the other. It's important to support work of uh, NGOs, for instance, who are committed to improving workers' rights and human rights. For workers, obviously, it's extremely important to be part of organizations and members of a trade union when possible. Sometimes I think uh, strategic litigation can also help bring uh, some change, legal change. Sometimes trade unions, workers and other organizations manage to bring strategically to bring cases to courts that challenge these laws, but none of these things are easy. We all benefit from these injustices. We really all do by being consumers, by living in this society, by having a domestic worker, perhaps by, by employing a domestic worker, by buying fruit and vegetable from the supermarket where we have had seasonal agricultural workers working. So it's important to be aware of these issues and to think creatively about what is the best way that we can contribute in addressing them. 
So there are a lot of things we could be doing and should be doing if we can, because as Virginia explained, many of us are benefiting from a system that exploits vulnerable people for cheap labor. Luckily, researchers like Virginia and organizations like Kalyan are helping to protect domestic workers and advocate for change. If you'd like to learn more about Kalyan, visit Kalyan, K-A-L-A-Y-A-A-N dot org dot UK. I'm working only five days in the week, uh, so I can go out, I can meet my friend, I can go out wherever I want. It's nice in here. Actually nice, I like it. Our next guest is here to talk about the fight for another type of freedom, one that takes place in the confines of a prison. Dr. Sarah J. Young is an associate professor in the UCL School of Slavic and East European Studies. She's had a lifelong passion for Russian studies, and her most recent research is focused on bringing to light long-forgotten memoirs of Russian prisoners. The story she's found for a book coming out this month, Writing Resistance, Revolutionary Memoirs of Schlüsselberg Prison, 1884-1906, to are truly inspiring feats of the human spirit. Schlüsselberg is still around, but it's uh, no longer used as a prison, thank goodness. When was it used as a prison, and where is it located? It was first used. It was used as a prison between 1711 and 1917, so for quite a long time. It's located at the mouth of the Neva River. St Petersburg is on the Neva River, and the mouth of the river is on Lake Ladoga, about 35 kilometers to the east of St Petersburg. The fortress is on an, a tiny island. It sort of takes up the whole of this island, just by the mouth of the river. That already sounds like creepy because of it's like this isolated prison there. But and what was the prison used for? It was mainly used for political prisoners, the victims or perpetrators of political in- uh, intrigues at court. And these victims of political intrigue were actually tied to the Russian Revolution. Can you talk about that revolution, like what that is, and and what was going on in history at that time? Okay, so uh, where does the Russian Revolution start is a very difficult question. One can talk about it starting in 1881, perhaps, with the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. The, the revolutionary movement had been building for a few years. This was a country of enormous inequalities with peasants who had only recently, you know, they, were, they had been enserfed, they, you know, they were sort of indentured labour, and they'd only recently been released from that, but on terrible terms, frankly. And the revolutionary came to the conclusion that the only way to change things was to assassinate the Tsar. So so you know, that, that eventually happened in March eight, uh, 1881. It didn't change things, not immediately anyway. And the revolutionary movement at that point was rounded up. And those, those, that was this generation of, of, of revolutionaries who ended up in Schlüsselburg prison. So these political prisoners who tried to assassinate the Tsar are sent to this prison that's completely isolated on an island. And can you talk a little bit about like what the conditions were like there at the prison? It was pretty grim. I mean, certainly in the old prison in 18th and early 19th century, there was a a very small old prison built into the fortress with small and very dingy cells. 
They were extremely cold. There was very little light. Food was quite poor. For most of the prisoners, their, their incarceration was quite short. Most of them were there for one or two years. You do get some prisoners who were there for a very long time. The, the record holder, um, Valerian Lukasinski, was a Polish freedom fighter. He was in the prison for 38 years, which is unthinkable. Then what happened, my, the, the prisoners from 1884 were in a new prison, which was a 40-cell prison with, frankly, all mod cons. They had toilets, plumbed water, you know, things that aren't actually sort of particularly normal in every Russian prison today. But it was still uh, a very, very harsh regime. They were in total solitary confinement. They had so no contact with other prisoners. The, the jailers weren't supposed to speak to them. They had no contact with the outside world. People in the outside world weren't even supposed to know they were there. They had terrible food, very, very cold cells, no work. They, they were just sort of supposed to sit in these cells all day with no work, no books, nothing. The tapping on the wall was the only way to communicate, I believe. Yeah, something, you know, a system that's known as the wall alphabet that is very well known for communicating between cells. Uh, and this was used in the 20th century as well when uh, people were imprisoned under Stalin. And even that, that was very severely punished at first, but in the end, the guards realised they couldn't stop it. So it's a very laborious way of communicating, but it did allow them some sort of contact with, with each other. And then the prisoners were able to exercise in pairs. First of all, that was the first thing. So they, for half an hour a day, they they would get to see somebody else. And you, when you've been in sort of sol complete solitary confinement for two or three years, you can imagine that's a really extraordinary sort of moment of actually sort of having real contact with another human being. And then the prison built allotments for them. So the first meaningful work they had. And in the end, they were also sort of breeding chickens and that sort of, <laughs> that sort of thing. So they were they, all quite extensive. And growing tobacco as well at one point. And really sort of what happened was the the, the the prisoners just pushed and pushed against the boundaries of what they were allowed and basically they, they, they gained more and more liberties as, as time went on. There were some reversals, you know, it, it was never, never a sort of constant process. It's amazing to think that these people that were so deprived were able to make such progress and under very bleak conditions. Out of the 68 prisoners, only 30 survived and half of them wrote memoirs. Sarah was able to access all of them, but could only include a few in her book. The memoirs, they're really interesting as a sort of group, you know, a collective text. And there was one which is very horticultural. They spent a lot of time working on, on allotments. And so there's one giving great, enormous, you know, huge amounts of detail about compost, <laughs> which I thought, you know, not really, not really my scene. <laughs> but, the, but then the three, it was these three that really stood out to me. Together they read very well and they sort of give a very rounded picture and that's what I wanted to achieve. So I've got Ludmilla Wolkenstein's memoir and she's important because there were only two women long-term prisoners there. They were sort of one of the, you know, the first memoirs of prison written by a woman in Russia. So you know, one thing that's really important about this memoir, I think, is that because she's right, she was writing at a time when a lot of the other prisoners were still in the fortress. This is a sort of really urgent piece of political writing. This is about bringing, bringing to, a, to the world's attention what was going on in this fortress. 
So that was, I thought that was absolutely crucial to include that. And then the second one is by Michael Aschenbrenner, who was a colonel, colonel in the army and got into sort of radical politics. And his, he was an incredibly erudite man. And this is a, it's a really incredibly detailed memoir. You're talking about everyday life, talking about all the things that they were doing, the things that they were reading. This is the one where you really sort of get to grips with, you know, where you could actually really reconstruct what they were doing on a daily basis. Then the third one by Vasily Pankratov is really interesting because, yeah, you know, uh, whereas Ludmila Volkenstein was from the gentry and so was uh, Mikhail Aschenbrenner, Pankratov was a peasant and, and a worker. So he was pretty, pretty much uneducated by the time he arrived at the fortress. He could read, but not much else. But he became, as they all did, because they were studying because they had nothing else to do a lot of the time. He became uh, sort of very well read. He learned languages. He sort of uh, became an expert in various areas. But he sort of retains this down-to-earth style that you don't have in the other memoirs. And it's a really, really vivid picture that he paints of how the prisoners relate to each other and how they relate to the uh, the guards. He really, he just really brings the whole thing to life, frankly. In places, these memoirs are quite harrowing to read. But once you get to Pankratov, it's actually great fun. It's astonishing that Pankrata was able to make the most out of what was meant to be an awful experience, going from being completely uneducated to this well-read individual who knew multiple languages. Their stories are really interesting and also really significant. It's important because this is a really sort of extraordinary group of individuals thrown together in this prison and many of them died but the one of the ones who survived they really sort of became this extraordinary group a collective who who worked to improve conditions in the prison and because so many of them died they really sort of became icons for the revolution but they have just most of them have just been forgotten in the sort of intervening years since the after the Russian Revolution, it obscured a whole area of revolutionary history that is really quite important, and a whole area of Russian prison history as well, and, and what they can tell us about that. Why do you feel that it's important to shed light on this whole issue of what happened and then the whole revolution? Why, why do you think it's important that we know about it today? With the Schlüsselberg prisoners, really for the first time, you get this idea of the, the violence of the state. Is very much more political than rather than an ethical message. And that is something that we see continuing into the 20th century. And you see this 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 idea of you of of the Schlüsselberg prisoners as model prisoners, not in the sense that they behave themselves for the prison authority, quite the opposite in a way, in that they, they know how to act in order to survive. And they learn how to do that from from previous generations of prisoners how we you know how we deal with this how we sort of behave in a way that makes us stronger not not to be destroyed by this and this is something that you get from generation to generation and you see it even even in writings about prison today in Russia that they're still thinking about the memoirs from the Soviet period and what they can learn from those if you're as intrigued as i am about these new memoirs Here's a little info about when and where you can find a copy of Sarah's new book. The book comes out at the end of June. 
It's coming out with UCL Press, and because it's UCL Press, it's open access, which means that you can go to the UCL Press website and search on Writing Resistance, and you'll find a link to download the book for free. Now that we've explored how pushing for incremental amounts of freedom can be used as a form of profound revolutionary resistance, let's explore another form of freedom. In previous episodes, we've explored the positive aspects of advancements in technology and what the freedom to utilize these advancements means. Less invasive surgeries, touch-sensitive prosthetics, fraud prevention... But there is a darker side, particularly when it comes to those cool tech devices you have in your home. You know, those ones that talk back and keep track of your fitness progress. You may reconsider what you keep around after you hear this. This is Sahili Dataverton. And her research looks into the politics and economics of um, science and technology, mostly looking at the emerging technologies in the health area. And so I I know like uh, a lot of the research you've been doing lately has been on like fitness devices and issues of people being hacked in these fitness devices. It's interesting because I've never really thought about fitness devices as as something that I have to worry about a security breach with it. it it's just not something that came to my mind. So what, what kind of data can these people collect? I mean, once they have unauthorized access to your device, they can collect whatever data there is. In quite a few hacker conventions, hackers have actually, in the public forum, hacked into these devices, into pacemakers, into insulin pumps, to show that you could just hack in if you change the dosage of the insulin pump, then, you know, it could have fatal consequences. It has been the case that there is no recorded instance so far of this happening. But in the case of a pacemaker, the pacemaker actually reads the data off to the mobile device of the user. And the data is recorded in the smartphone. From there, the the health organization which is responsible for uh, for looking after the patient then pulls the data from there. But this data is never available to the patient, to the user. And so if there's a breach and somebody pulls that data, uh, I mean, if you don't even know what reading there is, what has been taken or how it affects you. It's incredibly creepy to think that someone could be viewing your private information without you having any idea. In these kinds of scenarios, I've always pictured it being a stranger going after that information. But that's not always the case. And then one thing that was brought up in a recent paper of yours was an issue of domestic abuse as well when when hacking into this information, which is not which is another thing that I would would not consider or, or think about. How would would people I, I guess well I guess it's obvious now how people would use that when you talk about the insulin issue. But what are what are some other examples of ways that someone could use that to abuse someone? For example, children's toys. These all have Bluetooth. You know, those small iPads like a leapfrog. That is connected to the home broadband. And it has Bluetooth access. So a passerby. And there has been a case where um, somebody in the vicinity 
of home broadband access used the space and the storage space available there to store child abuse images. Somebody with even basic knowledge of Bluetooth and wireless technologies can do this. And for example, in one research, the child's leapfrog showed up in a very large corporation's network. But these tend to be ignored by the um, IT staff of organizations because, for example, now that we are in lockdown, a lot of us, we are all connected through our home broadband to the wider networks. For example, at UCL itself, it's my home broadband, but somebody connects to the leapfrog, they have access to the UCL network. So that's just, you know, one way that unauthorized access can work. Another way is by directly talking to the child who is using that leapfrog or that smart toy or that smart Barbie or, you know, whatever. And I think in the case of one of the toys in in Germany, the company was actually pushing sales through the toy in the sense that the toy was talking to the child and saying, would you like to have this? You're in something. So it's kind of a marketing to the child. You know, so these are the various ways. I mean, it's very anticipatory at this point, but could somebody then talk to the child and find out their route from the school on the way, where they go to, where they're walking? Oh, wow. That's, I mean, uh, yeah. And I, and I think about how much we use the, these kinds of devices. You know, I think about my parents who have the Alexa and like how much information can be taken in. Or I also think about people because everyone's pretty much working from home and then dealing with very sensitive information, talking about very sensitive, maybe that information is being recorded and used. It's terrifying. (laughs) No, that's another thing as well. I mean, most of these things, smart homes, they have cameras, they have microphones. And if the Alexa is sitting there or if there's a toy or a device that is just sitting there, even if you have a TV where the red light is turned on and it's switched off, but it's on, and it's a smart TV, it can hear what you're saying. If somebody hacks into it and you're having a private conversation, it can be recorded. So you don't really know who's hearing in, who's looking in, who has access to these. Oh, wow. Wow. This is definitely opening my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that that's really one of the key areas that... Uh, for the research in this area is to create public awareness more than anything. How do these things like Alexa affect me? Like you were talking about your parents and same with mine. For them, it's just a fun thing. You talk to them. How's the weather today, Alexa? Oh, it's great. And is somebody talking to you? I think it's a fun thing, but it has a real darker side which needs to be explored and people need to be aware of before making the decision to have these things sitting in their home in It's almost as if I like to tell my mother, it's almost having another person in the room. You just don't feel it because it's embodied in a little black metal box. But it is almost like having not just another person. It's like having a crowd in the room. Because you do not know how many third parties are listening to Absolutely. So what what can, what would you suggest be done? It's not a question that I can answer on my own, but I can just kind of discuss some of the ways that has been proposed this be approached. One is through deliberation with the public. I mean, we all know by now that the public voice is important, but what is the public voice? 
which public? You know, what, what exactly should the public do in this case? Is do they have a voice? So how to include the public voice, make it more inclusive, is, I think, key over here. And that has been the direction for a lot of the researchers to um, create the awareness, make the public more demanding. And that, in a sense, has become easier with the, with the smartphones that we all carry in the sense that it becomes a public debate very soon. Yeah, it's interesting that it's like there's this awful thing going on with technology, this dark side that you want to bring awareness to, but then also technology, you have to use, you're supposed to use technology to also bring awareness to this bad issue. So it's like, it's like technology is on both sides of that (laughs) issue. No, absolutely. It's It's a fine balance, but that balance is very hard to achieve. It's also making me think of how this kind of technology is just everywhere. No, it's absolutely the case. Every time I hear someone say, hi, Alexa, what is the weather today? Every time I see somebody do that, the key thing is to ask the question, what is that device doing for me? What what are the harms really that I should consider? Don't just read what's on the brochure, on the manual, on the box. But look inside, ask the questions. I think that brings really brings home to me this, you know, the need for publics to be more aware, to become more demanding of what is it they're getting into their homes. Yeah, yeah, no. Now, yeah, I feel like I'm going to be like, hey, uh, mom and dad, you might want to reconsider this Alexa thing. <laughs> uh, maybe listen to this podcast. <laughs> I, I'm not scaremongering, but the key thing is to know, and people are don't think sadly ask those questions you know I mean my own mom is like oh look I got Alexa I'm like what did you do do you know I'm studying this thing did you even bother to ask me (laughs) for you personally like do you are there any devices that you think are worth getting that have these have this kind of technology you know but then again you know I wouldn't want to put myself in the opposition entirely and say I'm completely opposed to all things connected or smart because, I mean, I do have a smartphone. I, I can't, you know, I have to get my emails when I'm outside. I mean, yeah, I think one should be able to or one should be able to make the decision to what extent they want their private lives to be intruded upon by tech because the tech may look neutral. It is not. It is politically, economically constrained, and more so, there is a security issue. And it is uh, really an intrusion into the privacy of a lot of people, homes, into lives, really, in the sense of, say, for example, if I give you the example of a child, you know, UNICEF made a very valid comment, and it said something to the effect, that we have children in classrooms, they have smartphones, they have smartwatches. This 24-hour surveillance, what does it do to childhood? So I think it's really key to kind of ask those questions. But yes, can I do without a smartphone? No, I can't. So I have to get that. But, you know, can I do without Alexa? Probably shouldn't be saying this on a public domain podcast, but no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get it. Because it's really having not just a person but a whole company and a whole group of people there in the room with me. And I, and I don't think I would want that. 
That's that's fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, uh, smartphones, you can't really avoid these days. And also because right now we're required to be basically contactable all the time, whether emails, phone, whatever. It's like, well, why why couldn't I reach you? Anyway, that's a whole other topic, but... I got a little off topic there at the end, Um, but the point is those smart gadgets you have may seem great, but you may want to think twice about them because Alexa is listening. So what have we learned from today? One, there are a number of UK work laws that need to change in order to protect people. In order to change this, we can advocate for it, of course, but in the meantime, we can also join unions when possible and be conscientious buyers where we can. Two, even in the most devastating and dire of circumstances, there's always hope and persistence is the key. And three, uh, maybe that techie device that you're like, is oh, super fun is, is, not, is not really worth it. Thank you for listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash made dash at dash UCL or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This episode was presented by me, Cassidy Martin, and produced by Karis Bradley. It featured music from the Blue Dot Sessions and additional sounds from freesound.org. Special thanks to Sarah, Sahili, and Virginia for sharing their time and expertise. And to Kalyan for sharing their video audio with us. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content, and activities that are open to everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed interviewing our guests this month. Thanks again for stopping by care of yourself and each other.